In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneval of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, The Legitimacy of the 1916 Rising, delivered by Mr Justice Gerard Hogan. Colleagues and friends, you're all very welcome to the fourth lecture in this series in relation to the bar and influences which have affected the bar, particularly with connection with this particular courtroom. Uh, we know that 1916, which is much of discussion at the moment, was something which, as an event, divided our country, but it also divided our profession, mostly 90% against and 10% in favour at the time. And what's very interesting in recent weeks, out of nowhere, a very large copy of the 1916 proclamation has appeared outside the Law Library in immediate juxtaposition to the war memorial of all the barristers who died in the First World War. So we have on the left-hand side, as you approach the Law Library now, the name of Tom Kettle, who died in Gaishi in 1916, and on the other side we pour Pierce Biel, who died in more local events. It's fitting in those circumstances also we would come to discuss it in this particular special place, which since 1972 and 2007 was dedicated to dealing with many trials where the defendants were people who believed that 1916 was what had legitimated everything they had done. And this evening, our speaker is perhaps the most prominent constitutional scholar, a member of the bar. Over many years, he developed an extraordinary degree of knowledge about the Irish Constitution. He has written the up-to-date definitive text in that Constitution. He is effectively also the leading constitutional archaeologist, sort of Indiana Jones of our profession, who has dug out all the texts and the foundation of the Constitution itself and how it was written. Uh, he also started his academic career in University College Dublin, moved to Trinity College, then to the University of Pennsylvania, collected a couple of doctorates en route, taught, uh, wrote, uh, effectively was a great lecturer, PhD director, but at the same time, at that exceptional academic level, he also combined his work with an extraordinary practice at the bar. And those of us who have been privileged to work with him would have seen his extraordinary abilities, both in the scholastic and in the practical fields. He was called to the bar in 1984, became a senior counsel in, 2000, sorry, in 1997, and thereafter moved to the High Court in 2010, and now sits on the Court of Appeal since 2014. As with great pleasure, I call upon him to address you in relation to the topic he has chosen to speak upon this evening, which is the legitimacy of the rising, question mark. Jerry. Um, I'm just old enough to recall the 50th anniversary of the Rising in 1966. My recollection of it was that it was one of joyful pageantry. Uh, it lit up, I suppose, otherwise dull young lives by being a sort of Christmas in April 1966. Uh, I can recall watching vividly and avidly the RTE series Insurrection. And to this day, I remain curious as to why it has never been shown since. Of course, much has changed since the writings of Father Francis Shaw, Ruth Dudley Edwards, and Conor Cruz O'Brien altered our historical understanding of Pierce and the other leaders. 
That 30-year conflict in Northern Ireland also raised uncomfortable questions about the legitimacy of those who invoked the cause of militant nationalism. And um, it's impossible to deny uh, that that was one of the legacies of 1916 and 1921 and 1922 and 1923, and in more recent times uh, from 1969 onwards. So the question of legitimacy um, is a fundamental issue, I suggest, so far as 1916 is concerned. And what I hope to do uh, this afternoon, and it's an enormous privilege uh, for me to speak in this very spot and to this particular audience, is to try to use the skills of our profession to see uh, whether some light can be shown on that. Now, I want to say immediately that there is no perfectly um, satisfactory answer to this, because this is ultimately a question of history, politics, military strategy, frustrated democracy, and other, other considerations to which um, there is no single answer such as might be given in a court judgment. But I do suggest, uh, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, that um, to try to use the skills of a lawyer in understanding um, this issue uh, and to trace the historical development, I think provides some assistance uh, to the resolution of this issue, but it is far <coughs> from a complete resolution of it. Now, the question of legitimacy was always there. During the treaty debates in January 1922, when uh, it began to, the first signs of a real split um, uh, in the Doyle manifested itself, some pro-treaty members professed themselves aghast during those debates at the idea that it was legitimate for some to rise up and to resort to arms against a majority of the Doyle. But Liam Mellows and others on the anti-treaty side were heard to mutter April 1916, uh, question mark. And it was those two words and the implicit question mark at the end of it that sent a resonance across the floor of the mansion house. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, it caused those who were on the pro-treaty side uh, to think again. Given that much of the debate since then has concerned the legitimacy of the rising, as I say, it's appropriate to try and look at this uh, question through the prism of a lawyer's lens. Now, let's go back briefly uh, before uh, 1916 and look at other prominent events in which um, members of the Irish Bar, as we know, were heavily involved. Um, if you start with 1798, uh, the rebellion of 1798. Well, it was regarded as a fact. There was a rebellion, um, and most brutally in Wexford in the southeast. Uh, and it was a bloody rebellion in which crimes against humanity, what we regard nowadays as crimes against humanity, uh, were committed on both sides. Um, I suppose going to school, we didn't learn about very much about the Skullabogue massacre. Uh, but on the other hand, there's no doubt, but that the rebellion was put down with mercilessly uh, severity by uh, the British forces. 
Um, but nobody really asks about the legitimacy of 1798. It's just regarded as one of these things that happened. And the same is true of 1803. Uh, and um, uh, again, um, we've heard memorably in these lectures uh, what happened to uh, Robert Emmett. Um, perhaps a lesser known fact is, is that his brother um, ultimately escaped to America, escaped the uh, dreadful fate of Emmett and escaped to America and became a very prominent lawyer and uh, argued in many of the great cases uh, be, uh, of early American constitutional law um, uh, before the US Supreme Court, including um, one of the best-known cases, Gibbons and Ogden in uh, 1821, uh, and that was no mean achievement for somebody uh, who had previously uh, been a member of the Irish Bar. But the questions are not asked really about 1798 or 1803, or for that matter about events in Paris in uh, 1789, or going back a few years earlier to 1776. They are regarded just as accomplished facts, things that happened. And to use um, uh, maybe highfalutin um, jurisprudence from Hans Kelsen, this was the kind of thing that just simply changed the Grund norm, that the legal basis of society changed completely and you just have to accept it. And really there's not much point trying to use legal analysis to understand it. Once it happens, once the legal basis for the revolution becomes an accomplished fact, well then you've just got to accept it. Conversely, if it doesn't succeed, as in 1798 or 1803 or in the 1860s, or, uh, and to a lesser extent in 1916, you just have to accept the legitimacy from a legal perspective, from the perspective of that grand norm uh, of uh, the society that what was done was illegal and must be punished. Now, <clears throat> that was certainly the thinking and would have been the conventional thinking of any political scientist or lawyer or military strategist who happened to survey the matter in the early part of the 19th century. But, um, I just want to pause for a moment and just compare what was later to happen in Ireland um, with the American Civil War and the outbreak of the American Civil War and the reaction to it afterwards. Because um, I suppose we tend to forget in this country that the, uh, the outcome of the, eight, the November 1860 um, presidential election in the United States with four candidates uh, which resulted in a very fractured uh, electoral response. Um, shades, perhaps, of recent events, but however, we'll move on from that quickly. Um, but uh, that was the fact that Lincoln happened to win with perhaps some 39, 40% of the popular vote in that election, and uh, meant that he was legitimately elected president, and nobody could deny that. Uh, and, um, but it was clear that for the Southern Confederacy, they were not willing to accept that result. Now, I ask you to put aside for one moment um, the fact that, obviously, uh, both then and now, the cause to which the Confederacy was attached uh, uh, was, uh, would be regarded and was regarded then as really a horrible thing, namely uh, American slavery. 
Just put that aside for one moment, and also put aside the legitimacy, in a sense, of the electoral process, because a very we know that the African-American population was systematically excluded from voting, even in the North, although there were some exceptions, but even in the North, um, in November 1860, and completely in the South, where uh, slavery and an apartheid system uh, operated. <laughs> and just reflect on the fact, and fact it be, that Lincoln got no delegate votes south of the Mason-Dixon line. And Lincoln was totally conscious of that. And um, he was faced with uh, the incumbent, James Buchanan, regarded, although there are some strong competitors, but regarded, I think, by most US historians as the worst US president ever. Um, uh, he was, he just simply threw up his hands and said, effectively, this talk of secession from the Union is illegal, but I'm not going to do very much about it. Now, Lincoln was determined to do very much something about it, and that, in a sense, set in train a series of events that led to the American Civil War, although Lincoln was, was careful to ensure that it was the Confederacy who fired the first shots at Fort Sumter in, uh, April, uh, in April 1861. But, but, but what I think is important for our purposes to reflect on, ladies and gentlemen, is this, is that even though by the standards of the day uh, and by the standards of the Union, the secession was totally illegal and the actions of the Confederacy were totally illegal, uh, and Lincoln absolutely subscribed to that, his attitude was to treat it as a fact. It was a fact on the ground that he had to deal with. And therefore, when the war came to a close uh, and Sherman had occupied um, uh, and had reached, uh, had, um, uh, had occupied Savannah and had, Atlanta had fallen to Sherman in September uh, 1864 and then there was Sherman's famous march to the sea, she reached him. Christmas Eve, 1864, uh, and it was then clear that the days of the Confederacy were, were coming to an end. Um, in, the, in, in March, 1865, Lincoln had a meeting with his two leading generals, Grant and Sherman, to discuss what should happen afterwards. And Lincoln's attitude was interesting, and had it prevailed, of course, in 1916, we would have had a very different Irish history. But it, was the his, but it was Lincoln's attitudes that paved the way for the America that is today. Because um, Lincoln said, when asked by Grant and Sherman, what are we to do um, with these um, Confederate soldiers? What, and what are we to do with those that um, were regarded as traitors by the northern press and who demanded that they be hanged from the nearest uh, pole, uh, Jefferson Davis and the others who had led the Confederacy. Well, Lincoln's attitude, as conveyed to Grant and Sherman, was let them up easy, and effectively said to Sherman, make sure that the leaders escape without me knowing about it. And to make sure as well that the ordinary Confederate uh, soldiers and indeed officer class were treated uh, with care. And I suppose Lincoln never 
never came to fulfill that promise personally because, of course, we know he was assassinated uh, less than a month later. But it was something that was put into practice because when uh, Lee surrendered to Grant on, a on that Easter, that, sorry, Palm Sunday, April the 9th, 1865, um, the, uh, Lee was astonished um, the fact that he expected personally to be in chains that evening and to be facing a treason trial. Never happened. Um, Grant simply said uh, that they were all the Confederate soldiers were paroled and what's more, um, the starving Confederate soldiers were given extra rations by the Union forces. And they were essentially told they could go home. Uh, their valor was appreciated. Uh, they had fought a cause they had lost and the Union had triumphed. And in, in Grant's words, we were all Americans now. And that was what was put into, into train uh, at the close of the American Civil War, and it culminated in a, a general amnesty and presidential pardon given by Lincoln's uh, successor, Johnson, in May 1865. Now, it is, I think, the paradigm of how to deal with uh, these great forces which confront democracy and law, for which democracy and law don't have a complete or full response. And it was interesting that it met with um, a parallel response on the Confederate side. One of the great Confederate soldiers, most feared by the Union uh, side, uh, John Mosby, was asked, well, why, would they, why you know, was he not continuing the war? Uh, and why did they not go to the hills and fight the Union forces uh, after, the, after Lee's surrender at Appapotomox uh, in, in April 1865? And Mosby's response was, we're soldiers, we're not uh, highwaymen. And that was, therefore, the sense in which um, that great fissure in American society um, that has caused more people to die than in any war, including the two world wars, Iraq, Vietnam, and so on, put together how, how the, that great fissure was healed by that enlightened response uh, from Lincoln. Now, come back to 1916, and the conventional view, of course, sorry, I take back the word conventional. A view that is often expressed is that the 1916 leaders were the minority of a minority. And um, we, whatever might have been said in 1966 when I was a child, the view, I suppose, over the last 20 to 30 years is this, is that people say, well, didn't the people of Dublin pelt eggs at them and weren't they terribly unpopular? And wasn't there no support uh, for, the, for the rising? Um, uh, and it was only after Maxwell had foolishly um, uh, executed the leaders that public opinion um, turned. I'm not so sure about that. Certainly, um, uh, there were those, especially those whose husbands um, and sons were fighting for the British forces uh, um, in, in Flanders and who were in receipt often of uh, money from um, uh, the British army, directly or indirectly, uh, were very unhappy at the idea uh, of the rising. But I can't think, and I don't think, that simply because um, the, the Maxwell blundered into executing their leaders, and it was a blunder, 
a major blunder, uh, that that was the single cause of what was to happen later. Because, and I, I think you can test this empirically, there was huge support uh, for Owen MacNeill. Um, not everybody went to France. Um, many who went to France did so for economic reasons and openly said so. Um, but there was huge support for Owen MacNeill's volunteers. And I often wonder, and one of the unanswered questions of Irish history is, what would have happened uh, had the odd not scuttled? What would have happened had Owen MacNeill not countermanded the rising um, uh, the night before? Uh, there would, I think, have been a very, had those two events not happened, there would have been a very significant popular uprising against uh, British rule. And I think no matter what you think of the rising or its legitimacy, it is impossible to say uh, that the British had ever um, uh, commanded majority support of the people on this island. There was never an example of where the Irish people as a whole had collectively given any sense of assent to that rule. At most, it was a sort of sullen acquiescence uh, in the hope that by not rising, um, Ireland might be treated fairly, uh, where we might have some hope of, of uh, independence or home rule, uh, and that was the reason why. But there was never a consent uh, to, there was never a consent of the government. And um, I think that you don't have to look to Jonah Barrington's memoirs regarding the bribery of the, mem of the members of the House of Commons uh, in 1800 to know that the Act of Union of 1800 will not do uh, for those who would assert the leg legitimacy in the broadest democratic sense of British rule in Ireland. And there's also no doubt uh, but that the governing class uh, uh, in Britain had contempt for native Irish traditions, our language, our games, the majority religion, and the culture. So Ireland was a case of, it was a case of a frustrated democracy. It was a democracy, insofar as it was a democracy, uh, it was one that was, to say, frustrated, where the hopes uh, of national aspirations um, from the 1870s onwards, from Gladstone's first conversion to home rule, uh, I think um, uh, had never been realized. And if you have a state of affairs like that, then what do you expect but that there will be facts on the ground, just as there was in 1776 or uh, 1789 um, or 1803, or for that matter, no matter what you think of the Confederate cause, in the Confederacy uh, of 1861. And as Hans Kelsen said, really from a jurisprudential point of view, at that point, law ends and military strategy and politics takes over. And there's another reason I suggest to you why it couldn't simply have been the executions. Because um, compare what happened afterwards. Um, there was um, far more executions during the Civil War. The 77, probably 83 in fact, but in the, the, the slogan was 77 were executed by the provisional government, free state government in 1922, 1923. 
that certainly caused a backlash, unhappiness and so on. But it's clear from the election result in 1923 that the majority of people um, in this state agreed, or at least assented to it, even if they didn't like it. Likewise, when the boot was on the other foot, and when de Valera and Fianna Fáil were in power in 1940, uh, to, throughout the uh, Second World War, and um, the IRA posed a threat, and uh, shot Garthi, interfered with diplomats, and so on, and generally conspired with Nazi Germany, um, those who were caught faced the death sentence. Um, uh, and uh, those executions were carried out. And again, uh, the people might not have liked it, but they did not revolt or did not fail to give their assent to what had happened. So I can't think that simply because there were executions in 1916, that that in itself was the trigger which afterwards caused people to, revi to revise their views. I think as a matter of facts on the ground, um, it had to be the case that there was a substantial portion of the population that uh, was frustrated, that was unhappy, that had never given its consent to this rule and was determined by one means or another to bring it, uh, bring it to an end. And the other thing about 1916 is this, is for those who condemn it as illegitimate, have to deal with the aftermath. And of course, the aftermath was the November 1918 general election. And all right, it may be said that Sinn Féin did not quite get a majority in the entire island of Ireland of the votes, although that ignores the fact that there was at least seven or eight constituencies where um, uh, there was no opposition to Sinn Féin. Uh, and had there been, there's no doubt as to what the result would have been. But by any standards, Sinn Féin won that election handsomely uh, in 1918 and uh, committed themselves to setting up the first Doyle. And that was part of their program and that's what they did. And the first meeting of the, of the first Doyle in, 19, in January 1919 set about to endorse the rising and give it a form of retrospective approval. And this is made clear by the Declaration of Independence, which the Doyle ratified on the very first day of sitting, on the 21st of January 1919. And it is in terms, I suppose, that anybody of my generation who went to school would recall as our history, because it is that is certainly the version of history um, which the, those who were in the first Doyle subscribed to. And uh, here are its terms or a, a quote in part. Whereas the Irish people are by right a free people, and whereas for 700 years the Irish people has never ceased to repudiate and has repeatedly protested in arms against foreign usurpation, and whereas English rule in this country is and always has been based upon force and fraud, so pause to say in school, the force and fraud bit was always emphasized, and maintained, and maintained by military occupation against the declared will of the people. That wasn't neglected either. Um, and whereas the Irish Republic was proclaimed in Dublin on Easter Monday, Monday 1916 by the Irish Republican Army acting on behalf of the Irish people. Now, therefore, 
uh, we, the elected representatives of the ancient Irish people and national parliament assembled, do, in the name of the Irish nation, ratify the establishment of the Irish Republic and pledge ourselves and our people to make this declaration effective by every means at our command. And again, like it or not, the effect of that declaration of independence was to say really two things. First, we give our retrospective assent to 1916. And second, um, we are going to do everything effective by every means at our command to uphold that declaration of independence. And um, that's certainly not a perfect example of democracy, because I suppose uh, in a perfect democracy, it is the parliamentary assembly gives its assent before the war is declared. But there was no Irish parliament in April 1916, and it is often forgotten but the very first act of the very first Doyle was to give that retrospective assent. And during this period, between 1919 to 1923, the ground rules uh, change subtly in a way that possibly has not been fully appreciated. The um, second Doyle, of course, affirmed the treaty. And the, by a narrow majority, it is true, but nonetheless affirmed the treaty. And the horror of those on the majority side, the idea, I've already referred to the fact that the horror of those on the majority side who thought that the minority could repudiate this um, was manifest towards the very end of those debates. Um, but the minority thought that they had law on their side as well. And it's interesting that the civil war broke out in a context of legalism, because the majority took the view, well, the second Doyle has um, decided to accept this treaty with Britain. It's not the full um, version of independence we might like, but it was in Collins's phrase, the freedom to achieve freedom. Uh, whereas the minority view was that the Republic was established in arms in 1916, that that had been affirmed by the first Doyle on the 21st of January 1916, and it was not competent for the second Doyle uh, to undo that. Now, there wasn't really a mechanism whereby that um, uh, these competing legal claims could be adjudicated at the time. Um, the only court system that was in existence was that of the, if you like, pre-1922 Crown judiciaries, as far as they were concerned, and they had said so uh, in stirring terms in 1921, all of this was the actions of a revolutionary assembly uh, to which they were not obliged and didn't give any notice. There was a thing such as the Doyle Supreme Court um, that might sound a very impressive body, um, but in fact, it was really three or four youngsters uh, with barely a law degree between them uh, <laughs> who sat in the back room in Parnell Square. And um, uh, when they did uh, begin to start issuing decrees, um, uh, it caused, I think, some degree of, I think, 
how shall I put it, bewilderment, if not amusement, uh, on the part of the uh, um, provisional government. Um, because once the shelling of um, the forecourt started, the Doyle Supreme Court and the government decided that it couldn't convene the Doyle in those circumstances and postponed it until September 1922. Uh, that's they were supposed to meet after the, the elections in June or early July 1922, but felt they couldn't because there was civil war in Dublin. The Doyle Supreme Court thought otherwise and granted no less than an order of mandamus uh, compelling these, the, the Doyle to meet. Uh, and they also granted orders of habeas corpus uh, directed at people who were suddenly in custody uh, at the hands of the provisional government. Now, the response of the, um, the, free, the provisional government was to regard the Doyle Supreme Court as having um, uh, just lost the run of itself and uh, uh, they were promptly wound up uh, and of course they protested and said all of this was illegal and indeed one of the members of the government um, one Mr. later to be president of the High Court George Gavin Duffy agreed and felt that the government the provisional government had acted illegally in doing all of this but all of that is to show is that when when war breaks out, and when there is that type of conflict between these forces, um, it's, you can't really resolve this with the legal methods, and certainly not at the time, and certainly not through judicial methods. But we can, I think, look back uh, through a lawyer's eyes and ask ourselves, um, well, was the civil war legitimate? Um, I think the answer, in strict legal terms has to be no, because um, there was simply no basis for the claim that the Republic which had been established in January 1919 could not be disestablished, because Article 5 of the Doyle Constitution, which was approved in April 1919, said simply that any provision of that Constitution could be amended by a simple resolution of the Doyle. And the Doyle had resolved um, in uh, January 1922, like it or like it not, by a majority to accept it, uh, to accept the treaty. And what's more, as Chief Justice Kennedy was later to point out in a series of cases, Ray Reed in 1927 and in the later case in December 1934, the great case of the state, Ryan and Lennon, um, that the second Doyle had no infirmities attached to it. In other words, it had a from an Irish perspective, it had a complete sovereign power. There was no oaths of allegiance, there was no impediments, it was an all-Ireland parliament, and that parliament had agreed to this. Um, whereas the response of the anti-treaty side, couched in legalism, certainly, was to say that there were certain things which were beyond the reach of majority <coughs> vote, that uh, there was a a resolution of the Doyle establishing the Irish Republic in January 1919, and that could not be disestablished without the consent of the Irish people. Now, as I say, if called upon to resolve this in purely legal terms, you'd have to say that the pro-treaty side had the better of the had the better of the legal argument. I underline the legal argument because there was, in fact, as I said a moment or so ago, there was nothing in that 1919 constitution of Doyle Aaron to stop uh, the Doyle undoing any resolutions that it had previously um, made. So, but the civil war, while 
there was this veneer of legalism on both sides was fought as a matter of historical fact. And as a matter of historical fact, as we know, the pro-treaty side uh, succeeded. But the pro-treaty side also made subtle changes to the ground rules. And those ground rules have an echo to this day. Because Article 46 uh, of the 1922 Constitution said that the Oireachtas had the exclusive right to regulate the raising and maintaining of such armed, of the armed forces on the territory of the Irish Free State. And likewise, Article 49 of the treaty, or sorry, Article 49 of the 1922 Constitution said that, save in the case of actual invasion, the Irish Free State shall not be committed to active participation in any war without the assent of the Oireachtas. Now, those were important changes because, um, for the first time, there was an Irish parliament um, from January 1919 onwards. There was, from December 1922, a constitution of the kind that perhaps contemporary lawyers, both then and now, would recognise. And um, that Arathus, freely elected, um, had decided to provide for these basic ground rules. That there was, from that point onwards, to be only one defence forces, only one Oglik Neheran, which was under the control of the Oireachtas. That, in theory, had been the position during 1919, 1921. The extent to which was observed in practice is a matter of debate among historians and military historians. But certainly, from December 1922, the idea of democratic legalism began to prevail and to assert itself. Uh, and one of the cornerstones of that in any society governed by the rule of law is that it is the parliamentary assembly itself that has the sole and exclusive right both to raise an armed force, to maintain an armed force, and to declare war. Um, and, and that was asserted uh, in uh, the Constitution of 1922. There was also, I think, another feature of um, the early 1920s that throws some light on this question of legalism. Now, of course, you can say, um, if you want to, and go back and have a, de a debate and lecture on the, on, the, on the Civil War, you can debate the merits as to who was right and who was wrong in terms of um, whether the Collins' freedom to achieve freedom was the approach, or whether uh, you can understand uh, the position of the anti-treaty forces. I think um, if the sagacity of Lincoln could have been called an aid in 1922 or 1923, he would have said um, that even though the pro-treaty side were correct in saying that um, the anti-treaty side acted illegally in purporting to ignore what the Doyle had done in January 1922, he would have understood, maybe not approved, but he would have understood the position of the anti-treaty forces. That, that here there was a sizable block um, uh, in the state which thought that the treaty was wrong, that the treaty was illegal, and to which they were deeply opposed. And you could measure it, in a way, uh, in looking at the results of the 1923 election. 
um, where all throughout the 1920s, you could see that there was significant support for the anti-treaty side, even though they had, uh, um, they had been responsible, if you like, uh, for the Civil War, or had been those who had, so to speak, li uh, like the Confederates in April 1861, fired the first shots. But I suspect that Lincoln would have said um, that um, this, while deploring the fact that there was a civil war, would have understood why there was one, even though he maintained it was illegal. And his approach, which was perhaps altogether too magnanimous to expect uh, of um, the free state forces in April, May 1923, uh, would have been to say, like he said to Sherman, uh, let them up easy. Uh, let them bring, make sure they, they get their horses back and they're given free rations. Uh, and we're all Irish men now. Um, that didn't quite happen, um, uh, because, possibly because uh, of the nature of Irish society and also because um, this was a fight to the death uh, on the two sides. And there had never previously been an Irish state in existence, when that was, I think, a significant difference between um, the position of Ireland in 1922, uh, uh, 1923 on the one hand, and the United States of uh, 1860, 1861 on the other. Um, but it still all rested going back to the legitimacy of 1916. And the complaint, I suppose, of many um, of modern historians um, is to say that whatever the rights and wrongs of 1916, it left us with a toxic legacy. And the toxic which we have never completely fully addressed, which is, is that if it was legitimate uh, for people to, to um, in, in resort to force of arms in April 1916, why was it not legitimate in um, June 1922 or in um, August 1969 and thereafter? And there are many people, I think as um, our chairman for this evening indicated, there's many people have sat in that dock before the, the Special Criminal Court who have effectively made that case, who see themselves as the inheritors of that tradition. Now, in the remaining 15 minutes or so, let's look at how the Irish state, through its laws, have subsequently endeavoured to deal with this issue. And actually, one of the interesting ways of looking at it uh, you might think is an improbable source. But the Army Pensions Act of 1923 and 1932 provide a very good guide. Because you know, there was no, in Ireland, 13th, 14th, or 15th amendments uh, to the US, uh, to uh, the post-Civil War amendments as there was in the United States, which effectively said, you know, these are the new rules uh, and the Union side has prevailed, and the Confederacy can come back into the Union on these terms. And the US Supreme Court, not surprisingly, in, in, in 1868, said uh, that the, what everybody from the Union side expected it to say, that the Civil War was illegal from the first place, and that it was all illegitimate. Um, we never had that. There was, I suppose, 
a, a sullen acceptance and gradual acceptance of the state uh, uh, in an incremental phases between 1922, 1923, 1927, 1937, um, 1949, and if you will, 1998. Um, and it was gradual, and um, there was never like a single moment whereby that democratic legitimacy was prevailed per for the entire state. It was a gradual process. But one of the keys, I suggest, uh, is in the Army Pensions Act of 1923. Because the Army Pensions Act of 1923 had very carefully said uh, that um, it provided for pensions for those who were um, uh, involved uh, in a, a military activity on behalf of the state um, from April 1916 onwards, up to 1923. But it was very clear. It was only those persons from the post-truce period, from post-July 1921, the Act made it very plain that, you, that after July 1921, it was only those people who were involved in military action uh, with forces maintained by the Minister for Defence uh, and referred in terms to the anti-free state forces as the enemy. So the Army Pensions Act of 1923 really set the scene because it was the response of the free state was, we were the lawful, we are the lawful government, and the, those who were on the anti-treaty side are the enemy. And anybody who fought on the side of the enemy is by implication a traitor. You may not face the firing squad, but by implication you were a traitor. And you were described, and they so described in the act, as the enemy. Now, of course, things changed. Uh, uh, the, 19, the, uh, the Army Pensions Act of 1923 was enacted shortly after the Civil War came to an end. But by 1927, of course, after the assassination of Kevin and Higgins, um, you had, of course, you had the foundation of Fianna Fáil uh, in 1926, um, uh, when de Valera split from Sinn Féin, uh, and then Fianna Fáil entered the Doyle in August 1927, took the oath, be it an empty formula or otherwise, took the oath. And that was perhaps, from political terms, one of the greatest um, acts of acceptance of the state by the anti-treaty side. Um, uh, but again, the battle lines were drawn within the Doyle. It was sullen acceptance of both sides. Sullen acceptance by Fianna Fáil of the fact that um, the ground rules had changed and they had to accept them. Um, uh, and it was in that sense that Sean Lamas's oft-misunderstood phrase of the slightly constitutional party, um, it was in that context that those words were, were issued. But uh, Fianna Fáil came to accept the rules that the free state had prescribed by democratic legalism, even though they didn't like them. But they said, uh, from now on, the fighting is finished. Uh, we, will, we will subscribe, maybe not completely, but we will accept the state. Uh, and then, of course, when their turn came, and it came relatively quickly and perhaps unexpectedly, so far as the free state government was concerned, uh, in 1932, um, uh, then um, 
De Valera and Fianna Fáil moved, you might say, almost seamlessly into office. Now, there were significant changes, but and one of them was the Army Pensions Act of 1932, passed in the um, in December of that year, and that made a very significant change of a symbolic kind because it, it gave a pension to anybody who fought, not simply on the pro-treaty side, but on the anti-treaty side as well. And it was as if, in its own way, um, it was a sort of silent symbol of the fact that there was a sort of legitimacy, there was legitimacy on both sides, that the Oireachtas had agreed, perhaps not with enormous enthusiasm on either side, but they had agreed effectively that there was something to be said for both sides of the argument. And uh, so the Army Pensions Act of 1932 didn't ever try to take away the pensions uh, of those who fought on the pro-treaty side, but extended it to the anti-treaty side. And again, it is the closest thing we have to saying, uh, well, in a sort of a way, the civil war was legitimate on both sides, uh, and we must accept that as a society and move on. And of course, so far as de Valera was concerned, move on he did, <clears throat> because the oath was abolished, and all what was then regarded <clears throat> in the general Republican tradition uh, as the trappings the, the, uh, of uh, left over by the Free State uh, Constitution and the Treaty of Links to Britain were one by one taken away um, uh, throughout the 1930s. The oath was abolished, the Privy Council, the appeal to the Privy Council went, the Governor-General went, and it all culminated in the Constitution of, of 1937. Uh, as an aside, in its own way, showing um, this sense of democratic legitimacy, um, uh, every single one of the drafters um, was a pro-treaty supporter. And it, the principal drafter of all, uh, John Hearn, um, uh, a very distinguished barrister, former um, uh, auditor of the, uh, law, uh, of the Law Student Society of, uh, uh, of Ireland in King's Inns, uh, was not just simply a pro-treaty supporter. He uh, was even further, uh, uh, if you like, outside the pale, so far as Fianna Fáil was concerned, in that he'd been a big supporter of John Redmond. But it was by bringing those people on side in the 1930s, and the, the constitution enacted in December 1937, that so far as de Valera was concerned, it was almost accomplished, Northern Ireland accepted. But certainly they saw no room anymore for militant republicanism within the state. And what's more, the Constitution in Article 15 uh, had, had copper fastened that which was in 1922 by saying there would now only be one armed forces. Um, uh, they were under the exclusive control of the Doyle. Uh, treason was defined as inciting or levying war against the state. And to copper fasten this further, this was um, affirmed in a referendum by popular vote. And the thinking within government in 1937, 1938, was there was no longer any excuse um, 
for the future, whatever about the past. There was, I think, a tacit acknowledgement that um, viewed from the perspective of legalism that either 1916, 1922, 1923, and so forth, they all had their imperfections. But by 1937, the ground rules were laid, and there was no, no excuse. And in fact, after the, <clears throat> the Second World War had broken out, um, uh, and during a time when the Constitution could be amended by ordinary legislation, um, de Valera instructed his drafting team to think seriously about putting in a clause uh, into the Constitution which uh, provided that essentially anybody who resorted to an illegal organization uh, um, would, uh, not, would not simply be engaged in criminal activity, but would lose citizenship and by definition would be a traitor to the state. Ultimately, that wasn't pre uh, prevailed with. Uh, but that shows the thinking uh, at the time. And of course, de Valera had moved from a period whereby having denounced the common Gael measures against militant republicanism in the 1920s, by, by 1936, um, the uh, IRA was, was uh, an illegal organization, culminating further in the Offense Against the State Act of 1939 and the declaring of the IRA to be an illegal organization, and that has not changed since. Now, if you move from the 1930s and the 1940s up to modern times, obviously it becomes more sensitive and more delicate uh, because um, the question of legitimacy is still a major debate, a major issue. Um, and I suppose one can say a number of things. Uh, the first is this. Um, Jack Lynch said as Taoiseach in July, August 1970, at the time when um, the civil conflict in Northern Ireland uh, was, becoming, was becoming much, much worse than perhaps it anybody thought it ever would be, uh, he asserted vis-a-vis -vis the um, IRA and the other illegal organisations that only the Irish government had the authority to speak on behalf of the Irish people. And of course, viewed through the mirror of the legalism of this state, that was absolutely correct. But it might also be countered um, by, in a sense, facts on the ground, because there were certainly a lot of people in Northern Ireland who might say and did say and did say to themselves, well, um, what right has Jack Lynch got to say that to us? we in Northern Ireland, because we can't vote for him. We, we don't accept this. And um, in a way, um, the, without pronouncing, in any, uh, pronouncing on uh, the, the troubles, which are too recent, too delicate, the wounds too raw uh, to admit of a full historical or legal analysis, um, I think you can see when you come to the, the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement and the Criminal Justice Release of Prisoners Act of 1998, you can see the accommodation which society has reached both here and in Northern Ireland. Because <clears throat> obviously for those who had maintained the paramilitary struggle, um, uh, the release of the prisoners was a critical issue. 
uh, and ultimately a pragmatic accommodation was arrived at whereby um, essentially the, a, a commission was going to be set up uh, and the, most of the prisoners, virtually all of them, uh, were released within two years of the Good Friday Agreement having been, um, having been agreed to. And the Criminal Justice Release of Prisoners Act of 1998 gives effect to that dimension uh, in our law. But it's interesting what that act uh, says. It schedules the Good Friday Agreement. And it says, under the heading of prisoners, both governments will put in place mechanisms to provide for an accelerated program for the release of prisoners, including transferred prisoners convicted of scheduled offences in Northern Ireland, or in the case of those sentenced outside Northern Ireland, similar offences. And went on then to contemplate a phased release of the prisoners within that two-year period, which is what happened. And in a sense, that gives you a clue. Um, it was as if society was, was arriving. In its own way, the Release of Prisoners Act of 1998 is symbolically important as the Army Pensions Act of 1923 or the Army Pensions Act of 1932, because it's the nearest that we have got through the actions of the Oireachtas to pronounce on this question of legitimacy. The 1998 Act and the Good Friday Agreement was not like Lincoln, Grant and Sherman on the River Queen in March 1865, with Lincoln telling Sherman, let them up easy. It wasn't even like Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, in May 1865, pronouncing a general pardon and amnesty for those who had been involved in the Confederacy. But neither was it um, uh, like the uh, attitude which, for understandable reasons, say the English judges and indeed Irish judges in this very court had taken to some of the terrorist outrages which said, look, these are people that is pure evil and it's wrong and it must be condemned. It was a sort of acceptance that neither side was right. Not fully. It wasn't like the Confederate amnesty of May 1865, which said, look, essentially, this is split in society, um, go away and sin no more. Because there was not a full pardon. There was not people being given mules and horses and extra rations and with a pat on the back from the Union forces as they cheered the Confederates as they went home. It wasn't that. It was much more messy. It was much more unsatisfactory in a way, but that was a sort of muddled legalism to which uh, society uh, had uh, pronounced insofar as it could in 1998. It was saying essentially, yes, this was illegal, but we understand in a way, to a degree, why you did this, and therefore we're not going to treat you um, with the full rigors of the law. And thus, ladies and gentlemen, I conclude on this. Um, um, I think that applying legal standards to look at the legitimacy of 1916 and its aftermath can help us to understand historical events through the prism of law. But it is a narrow enough prism because when you have these huge forces which start a rebellion and start an insurrection, then 
Um, if that succeeds in whole or in part, really at that point, law enters a kind of legal black hole. And it's wrong to look at it in purely legal terms. You've got to measure it in terms of both facts on the ground, democracy, um, military strategy, and so forth. And viewed in that way, certainly there was no perfect legitimacy for 1916, and there never will be. Um, uh, it was not, for it's not comparable, for instance, uh, to the legality, say, of uh, the uh, British Parliament in uh, September 1939, formally declaring war on Nazi Germany with a vote if necessary, or Congress in 1941, US Congress in 1941, voting with one dissenting voice uh, to start a war on Japan in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. It's not that type of democratic legitimacy or that type of democratic legalism, in part because there was a governance by people who had never a full legal authority to govern. Uh, it, was govern it was a frustrated democracy for all the reasons that I've sta stated. And there was no Irish parliament in existence. So to look at it in those ways, um, uh, I think would be a mistake. But certainly, if you look at what happened afterwards, in the prism of events from 1919 onwards, you can see that a form, an imperfect form, admittedly, of retrospective <laughs> approval was given by the Irish people in January 1919. We might, may not like it, we may not approve of it, but, that's, but that is what our grandfathers and, uh, and grandmothers elected to do. Uh, and um, from then onwards, um, you see that the ground rules begin to change. It moves more towards legalism, more towards democracy. But even in our own time, uh, there has been an acceptance that in some respects all of this uh, is imperfect. And ladies and gentlemen, you thus conclude in the words that uh, the, the final thought, the legit legitimacy of the rising has always to remain an open question. I think as lawyers we can bring our legal skills to show some light on this, but ultimately um, uh, I like to think that it is, again, going back to Lincoln in the spirit of, of Gettysburg, the echo of which has resonated throughout the ages since those words were issued in, first issued in November 1863. It's government of the people, by the people, for the people. And I would like to think that for all its imperfections, Irish democracy is strong and it has prevailed from 1922 onwards. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mr. Justice Jared Hogan deliver his lecture on the legitimacy of the 1916 Rising as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.